is Tracy Siska. I'm executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. I'm also host for our Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. We're excited today to have Deborah Witzberg, Deputy Public Safety Inspector General for the City of Chicago, here to talk about a report they recently put out. But first, we're going to start with a couple, uh, a couple of tidbits about our work at CJP. Now, every Monday morning, uh, what we are calling a Monday morning brief, we are putting out basically an analysis of some of the media coverage from the week prior, looking at how they use data, the sources they use, uh, how credible the stories are built. So you can go to our website and uh, get on and join an email list and get on and get that every Monday morning in your mailbox. And we also are working on, we're just uh, releasing what's called out right now, our ambassador program, which is going to take a bunch of our supporters, volunteers, and like-minded people, bring them together and uh, empower them to advocate for the transparency and uh, accountability that CJP is pushing for. So if you're interested in that right now, you can email us at info at chicagojustice.org and I will get you on that list. Our first action for that group is next, this coming Tuesday. And that is gonna go along with a very large multi-count FOIA lawsuit that CJP will be announcing and filing on Tuesday morning. Um, and I'm gonna keep you in the dark about who that is until that time, um, but if you, uh, Email us at info, info at chicagojustice.org. You can get involved and we'll let you know what's going on. So I'd like to welcome Deborah Witzberg back to our show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Deborah was on on July 15th talking about a report uh, the Office of Inspector General did on the CPD's use of or response to subpoenas. Uh, quick hint, you can, well, first of all, you can find that on our YouTube channel or on our Facebook page. Hint, it's not good. And uh, this may be a shock also to you. This is not going to also reflect great things about our um, uh, uh, police accountability system and city policies. So this report, I'm going to re read the title here, Review of Compliance with the City of Chicago's Video Release Policy for the Use of Force Incidents. So Deborah, what exactly is this video release policy this report is about? The video release policy is one which um, came out of the work of the Police Accountability Task Force, which was convened by then Mayor Emanuel in the aftermath of the release of the LaPont McDonald video. Um, obviously, one of the things much at issue following LaPont McDonald's death um, was the, the question of how long it took for video of that incident to be made public. Um, one of the recommendations that the Police Accountability Task Force made was that the city implement a policy which set the, the kind of procedures and guidelines and timeframes um, within which the city would, would make material about certain police uses of force publicly available. So the city did in, did in fact adopt the video release policy immediately upon receipt of that recommendation. Um, and the policy is one which requires that within 60 days of the, of the date of incident of certain kinds of use of force by the Chicago police, that the city via COPA um, in its implementation post publicly video and, and certain documents um, and other files related to those incidents. And I think it's important just, you know, as, as we move into this conversation about, about problems with compliance with the policy to say that Chicago really was a national leader in the adoption of that policy. And so, you know, the fact of the policy is, is a very good thing from a transparency and accountability perspective. Um, we're now sort of in a, in a place where we need to adjust the policy a little bit, I think, and, and to, you know, think about the ways in which the city complies with it. Right. And I, I, I agree. I think the policy is great. Um, 
and we'll get get into that more later about the intricacies of it. Um, I and I think I said this when you last appeared. I am moving. I have moved much towards, even though I I was kind of the inspiration around creating your office. I have moved much more towards front end uh, legislative controls over things, and and form and cementing things in law rather than necessarily just in policy, because. Um, Chicago has a history of not following policies, um, as your two reports now show. But obviously, I do agree, though. I do think it was a great thing. I think the other problem is every time they every time there is some issue, whether it's on purpose or not, that they violate it, it just further breaks down the trust about how the agencies operate. I I think that's I completely agree, and I think that's a really really important insight. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get more into the details here, but I think in, in this whole area, particularly in my mind, where we're talking about the police disciplinary system, when we talk about things going wrong, um, this is not necessarily a volume problem. It's an impact problem. So even where the numbers, you know, I, I think the scale of the problem is not necessarily reflected by something going wrong in a huge number of cases, but rather it's exactly the problem you just articulated, that whenever something goes wrong, in however many situations that is, um, it leaves space for doubt and for mistrust of the system. And that's a hugely important impact, even if it only happens, you know, in a small number of situations. I, I, I totally agree. Right. And we're in Chicago that has had a long history of problems around police accountability and government trust. And I mean, this policy was born out of the fact that Rahm Emanuel covered up the murder of Laquan McDonald through not releasing the video so that he could win an election and then settled a, came to a civil court settlement without a civil complaint ever being filed to pay off the family to keep the video secret. So um, that is what, what it's born out of. And I don't think, I wish the justice system agents would understand that as how, when these things break down, either for bad or good purposes, the profound impact it has. And I've argued with journalists over and over and over again in Chicago that where there's smoke, there's usually fire. But where's their smoke, they have to find out why their smoke is there, regardless of whether it's just, um, you know, a mistake, incompetence, or corruption. They have to find out why it's there. Okay, go ahead. And, and I think that the distrust itself is a problem, right? If there's a if there's a condition which is causing distrust and mistrust in the system, that is itself a problem. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I, I think, um, I just wish that message that how you articulated it could seep into the culture of our agencies more than maybe the head or talking points, but really seep into the culture, understanding that transparency and being open. Um, really breeds trust, and that's the way to do it. Um, I think there can, I think the trust can be built. I think that there needs to be fundamental changes in a lot of things, but I think people want to have faith in the agencies, all of them. Um, it's just, um, you know, I've been doing this 24, 25 years. It's really hard to have trust in any of them. Like, I'm always looking for some side agenda that's going on, probably because I'm too curmudgeoned in it. Occupational okay. hazard. So, it is an occupational hazard. Um, and I understand when people talk about the police and how they become jaded, I understand that. But that's something we've known for 30, 40, 50 years. We have to find a way to um, reduce that. 
That's an, that's a responsibility of the accountability system of the department of the city. I understand why they become jaded. I know enough cops. I know what some of them see on some days. Um, I understand why they get jaded, but you have to find ways to um, minimize it. Okay, so let's just say that. Um, what what exactly does the policy? So, what happens? What are the incidents that happens, and how does COPA get notified? What does COPA need to be notified about? So the um, the policy speaks to, as I say, certain kinds of use of force incidents, which include firearm discharges, um, discharges of tasers, which result in death or great bodily harm, um, and and uses of force situations um, in which people uh, resulting in death or great bodily harm um, in custody. And so when one of those incidents happen, um, CP, uh, COPA might receive notification of those incidents in a number of different ways, which is just by way of foreshadowing part of the problem here, right? <laughs> problem. They might receive, they might receive notification. There, there are a large, a large subset of those incidents um, of which COPA is supposed to receive notification from CPIC from um, the Chicago Police Department's kind of intelligence hub. They are supposed to provide notification to COPA when one of, one of these incidents occurs. There's a smaller subset of incidents where a, um, a supervisor is supposed to notify COPA. And then there's another kind of category of these things which COPA learns about when somebody files a complaint. So it's conceivable that someone would file a complaint with COPA about it, you know, bringing an allegation of misconduct that might relate to one of these incidents, an incident that would fall into these categories, um, about which COPA may not have been previously aware. And so that's kind of another stream of, of notification to COPA. Okay, so COPA gets notified. How do they identify that they're getting notified about some incident or someone files, like you said, a complaint for brutality or whatever? Mm -hmm. How do they make a decision? I, I think in reading your report, it states that they, it used to be human, and now it's a computer that does it. How how was that policy done? How were they doing it? How are they doing it now to identify cases where they may have to release uh, video, audio, some documents, or whatever it may be? I, I think the big picture answer is that while there are some changes between how this happened under an old information system compared to a new information system, broadly speaking, this is some combination of um, a, like data, you know, screening based on data criteria and human review. So there's a process by which, you know, categories, incident categories are identified, which might trigger mandatory release under the policy. And then if an incident falls into one of those categories, then a human, a person at COPA reviews the incident to information about whether it meets the policy's criteria for mandatory release. Okay. So is COPA being notified? To what degree? What what degree do you think uh, out of 100% are they getting notified about these incidents the way they should be? I think the difficulty here is that um, there are not good mechanisms in place to ensure that COPA is getting all of the notifications it should be getting. So, right, hard to know what we don't know. Um, but I think that our recommendations around COPA's interactions with CPIC, with CPD and CPIC specifically, go to exactly this point, that we need kind of better controls in place to ensure that COPA is getting all of the notifications it should get, even in a way which might err toward over-inclusiveness, right? Better, from our perspective, 
have the notifications go to COPA and let them kind of apply their various screens and criteria measures, um, better that than to miss a notification to them. And so there we looked at the way that CPIC and COPA interact. There's, there's sort of a, what's referred to as a notification matrix. There's kind of a, guide, a guiding document which is intended to um, assist CPD personnel in sorting out the circumstances under which they should send notification to COPA. That is not in its current form an actual CPD policy or a binding directive on CPD personnel. And so one of the recommendations we made was, was just that, that be enshrined, that guidance be, be enshrined, reflected in an actual binding directive of the department um, to give better guidance to CPD personnel and to allow for them to be, you know, sort of held accountable to, to appropriate work on that. Um, okay, so I'm, when we were, as Alana Rosenzweig left and Scott Ando took over, this is the Independent Police Review Authority that would later become COPA or the System Office of Police Accountability. Then Scott Ando was fired under the Laquan McDonald's fallout. And he was placed with Sharon Fairley. And I remember a meeting we had with Sharon Fairley where she told us there were quite a few number of shootings that COPA was not notified on that had never been investigated by COPA in the, in the few years before she took over. And um, that alarmed me. It alarmed all of us that that could possibly happen. Um, and now that you're saying like they don't have these policies, guidelines enshrined in their general orders. Is this, is this just because that's how the CPD operates and they think it's good enough? Is this done maliciously? Is this done because they're too busy? I mean, because that would seem to be something you'd want to make sure that got exactly down right so that it didn't get overlooked and then exposed and then hurt the trust of the people, even if the cop did everything right. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very important to say that we did not find any indication that, it, that this was done maliciously, that either that, you know, notifications weren't being sent intentionally or that materials weren't being posted. We did not find intentional misconduct on anybody's part in any of this. Um, but there are clearly, there are systems gaps, which, which give rise to the possibility of failures, right? And, and that's, I think that's, that's what we're getting at. I will say, um, I think it is likeliest that, um, and you know, I, I can't speak to the historical incidents, um, which I, I, that does sound like it would have been an alarming conversation. I think the current state of affairs or, or the, the state of affairs, you know, during our period of inquiry here, the likeliest situations where notifications to COPA might have sort of fallen between the cracks were not things like officer-involved shootings, but rather were ones where there were questions of fact relating to the criteria. So for example, great bodily harm is poorly defined as a legal matter. And so if a criteria is, you know, that is to, for example, and I'm just using this by way of, by way of an illustration, send COPA a notification of a taser discharge, which results in great bodily harm. There's not necessarily, that is not necessarily a, a sort of black and white empirical question. So I, I think, I think those are the likeliest kinds of situations in which a notification might not go out. Um, the other example that we learned about talking with CPIC personnel um, to do with certain kinds of vehicle crashes, uh, car accidents, where like it wasn't entirely clear to COPA, to, excuse me, to CPIC personnel necessarily whether to send notifications. They identified those to be a small percentage of cases. Um, but again, for all the reasons we've talked about, right, any percentage is, is too large a percentage. 
So we made an explicit recommendation that, that this be made into a binding directive and CPD committed to doing so. They committed to, to issuing either a general order or a special order, um, making concrete these sort of guidelines around notifications to COBA. And, and I would say, you know, one of the things that makes this a challenging problem um, is that there are so many city agencies involved. So you can see that in reading our report that we make recommendations directly to CPD and to COPA and to the mayor's office, um, and then sort of as well as OEMC, the Office of Emergency Management and Communication, which houses obviously the 911 operation and is the repository of a lot of the, um, the video evidence that's at issue here. So in any situation where there is a handoff of information between agencies, there is an opportunity um, for problems. There's, there's an opportunity for sort of like failures in the handoff in, in one direction or another. And I think that's part of what's at work here. Yeah, I, I have no doubt. I, I think that a lot of things that people think are malicious are due to lack of attention or bureaucracy. Um, mm -hmm. But because of everything that we've had in the history in Chicago, it is understandable where people just go to the worst explanation. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. I, I think that's exactly right. Any any amount like any room for doubt breeds that. And I, I think that's hugely important. I also think it speaks to um, one of the a really kind of pressing need in the way we think about reform, which is that that the police department should be understood not as a siloed institutional actor, but as part of an ecosystem. Um, and as part of the kind of the criminal justice apparatus in the city and in Cook County. And so in order to, to understand its operations and the implications of their failures, um, I think it really has to be understood in that kind of ecosystem context. And that's that's certainly a work in this report. I agree 100%. And CJP has always taken that perspective. And I told you before, we wouldn't get into FOIA, but I'm going to get into it. I believe you and have to understand everything the CPD does. You have to understand what comes into them and what exits them. Right. What mm -hmm. comes into them from the 911 center and what exits them is going to the state's attorney. And when you can understand that and their data, then you have a full picture of what's going on. Um, so I, I 100 percent agree with that. OK, we're going to turn back to the report here. I'm not going to not going to I'm going to resist the urge um, <laughs> for right now. <laughs> so yeah, for, for right now, in case you slip up and bring it back up, then I'll I'll be happy to bring it up with you. Um, I'm, I'm going to blame you. In the report, you outlined three stages for releasing materials related to uh, related to these types of incidents. What are those three stages? So in the Tell report, me where. Goes, okay, so in the report, I just got them down. It says notification of COPA. I want to talk about each yeah. one of these stages. Yeah, COPA's okay. identification of incidents and then COPA's release of materials. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about the notification. It's cumbersome. It depends on the type of incident, who does it, and who they're contacting. Yeah. Um, that obviously needs to be cleaned up. And in my yep. view, I think you write about this in the report. I think the CPD, I'm sure they won't like this, they should be like a fire hose to COPA, which means anything remotely, remotely, remotely close should go, and then COPA should make the decision. I think that, I, I, I think um, that's, a, that's a more illustrative description of what I was getting at with the notion of going toward over-inclusiveness, right? Better to have things get weeded out in the determination process than to have notifications be missed. And that, so that brings us to COPA's determination process, right, which is the second phase um, mm -hmm. that, that you identified there. And that is the process we talked about, which is some combination of filtering by, by incident category, kind of looking at points of data, which at, the, at very, very early stages following an incident 
you know, market in the, in the case management system, um, and then applying a human review to the facts of the incident to make a determination about whether or not the incident meets the criteria um, for mandatory release of materials. And that, that has, you know, again, I, there, that's, there is inevitably a human component to that process and human processes are people. Um, I think there are all kinds of questions around staffing and, you know, who should be making those determinations and what sort of training those people should have, what the scale of that effort is, how many people that should take. Um, I think those are all important questions about, about that kind of determination phase. I, I, I also think, you know, it's a question about whether there's, and, and this, I'm sure we'll, we'll come to this later, this is the last, has to do with the last finding in the report, but I think there's a question about whether or not and in which places the policy offers appropriate guidance to make those determinations, whether the policy itself is clear enough about, about which incidents um, are mandated for release. Yes, and I, I think that um, for all involved, we, we, you can understand there's going to be mistakes. I think we have an issue with we're creating these agencies, but we're not funding them in a way for them to be successful. I view the public access counselor's office who does FOIA, sorry, I slipped back for a second. They've always been underfunded. They've never been, they've never been able to deliver on their mandate. And that's basically, I don't think that has to do with the leadership. It has to do with what the general assembly funds them. And I think the more like we heap this activity on COPA to do this review of these technology and create the system and then release it, did we increase their funding and their staffing so they can adequately do that? I think I think that's a really important observation, and I think that is a that's a really important thread in what is a you know a, a really complex national conversation at the moment around the funding of public safety operations. Um, reform takes resources, no two ways about it. Um, and I think you know sort of decontextualized defunding um, raises exactly the sorts of concerns you're getting at. Um, so I, I agree. I think those are important considerations, and we do in fact really having to do with the OEMC operation, but one of the things we recommend here is sort of a staffing analysis, that somebody take an intentional look at how many people it would take to do this right. Yeah, they should absolutely do that. Um, the police should do that. I mean, we should have those regularly, routinely, if not every budget year, maybe every two or three years, that should be done. We're going to, you brought up OEMC, which is the Office of Emergency Management and Communications. I've been told I talk in too many acronyms, so I'm trying to spell those <laughs> out a little bit in this Sorry. show. So COPA, no, don't apologize. I do it all the time too. COPA, Citizen Office of Police Accountability. I'm going to give you a quote and then I have a comment about it and I want you to comment. COPA should improve certain internal processes and collaborate with OEMC and the mayor's office to develop interagency processes that support the timely deliver of material to, uh, for COPA's requests from OEMC. So in here, if at least in my reading, and since I'm not tied into the system, I can say what I want 100%. This quote makes it seem like there's not a really formatted, in-stone, objective uh, policy in place for how OEMC has to respond to COPA in a certain amount of time. There seems to be they're leaving it up to discretion, and that seems to never work. So I just wanted your comment about that. Well, I, th I think that um, again, not having found any indication that anybody's doing any of this on purpose, um, this, yeah. is a, this is a situation of, of 
really unfortunate operational reality, which is, you know, you talk about a fire hose to COPA. I think, I think it would be a fair assessment to say that OEMC receives a fire hose of requests for materials from all kinds of places, COPA and the state's attorney's office and and civil rights, you know, all kinds of places. Um, And I think OEMC is, is not adequately equipped to respond to all of those requests in a timely way. So one of the things that you see in the report is that we kind of talk about like where the where the problem that we're looking at is the failure to timely release materials, right? The failure to get materials posted publicly with the 60 days prescribed by the policy. There are kind of two categories of factors there. There are some that have to do with COPA's internal practices. And then there are some that fall into this category of kind of interagency challenges. And that's where the OEMC question comes in. Um, we look at, there's some data in the report looking at how long it takes for OEMC mm-hmm. materials to COPA once COPA has requested them, right? And there are situations where simply that response time takes more than 60 days. If it takes COPA more than 60 days to get the material it has asked for in order to review it and make an eligibility determination, that's not going to get posted within 60 days, right? Couldn't possibly. Um, and so I think that really speaks to... Um, a staffing and a resource question, as well as a prioritization question. And so that's kind of what we get at with respect to some of the recommendations dealing with OEMC and COPA's interactions. Is like, is there beyond, so there needs to be a staffing assessment, right? We need to look at how many people we need to do this work in a timely and, and you know, efficient and accurate manner. Um, and we, we also need to look at whether there are process adjustments which would make this easier. Um, OEMC, had some some things to say about the specificity of COPA's requests and whether if COPA made more specific requests, that might sensibly be expected to lead to faster responses. Um, you know, I think there's room for improvement from a lot of directions. Right, and so I'm going to go, one of the next quotes I had, and we've talked about a little bit, is that there isn't the same policy issue around, notif- I mean, we've talked about it, but the notifications, it's the same thing. There needs to be between CPIC Am I pronouncing that right? And COPA, that multi-level responsibility for who responds depending on this, that seems like it's set up to fail, right? If depending on this or that, it's this person or that person, instead of having just a centralized system by which CPD is, you know, gets that information to COPA, or am I missing something in how this works in life? No, I, I think I think you know that's right. I, sort of decentralization of responsibility, diffusion of responsibility, and interagency handoffs. I think very much in the way we talked about. I think raises opportunity for failure. I will say, I one of the things I found very heartening about the responses to our recommendations in this report um, really was a recognition. I think you know reflected in those responses of the need for interagency collaboration. This is, no two ways about it, this is a multi-agency problem. It requires multi-agency solutions, right? No one actor here in this sort of ecosystem, the kind we talked about, can solve this problem on its own. Um, and I, I was really, as I say, heartened by the fact that I think the responses reflect that. Um, and, and I think the, you know, the involvement of the mayor's office and the response of the mayor's office is encouraging in that I think the mayor's office is well positioned to sort of quarterback activities of the of the constituent city agencies. Yes, well, one would hope if she can't do it, if they can't do it, I'm not sure who is going to do it, right? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, Mayor Reform, let's hope she sticks to her uh, candidacy and her uh, time previous to being in office. Um, 
So I saw something in the report that I didn't understand happens, and I guess it somewhat makes sense, but I wonder if you can talk about COPA allows what you guys call the subject of the police action to review or their representative to review the content. Is that so like if they want to seek court orders to stop it from being released, they have the ability? Is that just a heads up? Why is that happening? Do you know? I think there are a number of different ways that would play out in real life, but I think one important way to think about that, and certainly one which was part of really I think the conversation around the formation of the policy had to do with the fact that many of the incidents which are captured within the policy are really serious and sensitive and traumatic ones, including situations in which somebody is shot and possibly killed by the police. And so part of the notion that you described there has to do with, for example, the family of somebody who was shot by the police having an opportunity to see the materials before they go public. And I think that there's sort of a humanitarian recognition there that nobody should see a video of a family member being shot by the police for the first time on the news. Okay, that I agree with. When I first read it, I thought like, well, is that just another filter to stop things from being released? Or is this a heads up being respectful? I understand that AI would agree that they should not have to see it the first times on the news, and they should know it's coming out. I agree with both of you. And I think, you know, the court order sort of around a delay, I think that's an important question. The allowance that the policy makes for that is that police can be delayed pursuant to a court order. So there is a recognition that there are sort of, there might be, in addition to kind of privacy concerns, there might be procedural fairness concerns, which would weigh in favor of the delay of the release of materials, but it does not provide for the prevention of release, right? So it's a question of when, not whether. Right, okay. So I'm going to go a little bit just into the methodology. So what you looked, correct me if I'm wrong, the analysis was, I believe the numbers, we're going to get into numbers, but I think it's something like 325. You looked at the cases in which COPA posted material on their portal, and then analyzed to what degree that data, the video and whatever other materials were posted, video, audio, was posted within the time limit prescribed by the policy. Correct. And so it didn't necessarily look at whether or not COPA is correctly identifying cases that should be, have materials posted for them. That's right. We did not undertake a sort of shadow determination process, which is to say we did not do a pool of incidents to see like what determinations we would have made about eligibility. Right. And so, I mean, I think the report's great. I just, I want the context so people know that process is still a little dark right now. We're assuming COPA is doing it right, but that remains to be seen. Unfortunately, my pessimism will not allow me to have faith in anything in the police accountability system. Okay. So I'm going to quote from the report again. Of the 122 use of force innocence that OIG reviewed on COPA's website, 33 or 27% did not have information posted in the case portal within the time guidelines. And that you gave some, there's a 
there's a um, data visualization on there and I want to just go through the numbers for my viewers and then we can talk sure. about why that happened, at least why sure. in your view. So of that, you break down 14 for improper calculation. Mm -hmm. um, and this is around mixed notification date rather than uh, the date at which they decide it's a case that needs mandatory release. Is that correct? A couple of different things. I, so that I, that I think kind of two groups, 14 cases in one category, 12 in the other, that's a combination of things. There was yes. a okay. cases had to do with, I, I think really just a, a miscalculation of the date um, where, you know, COPA started the 60 day clock, not on the day that the incident happened, but on the day that they learned of the incident. And, you know, um, Chief Administrator Roberts was, was very vocal in her response about the situations that is simply a difference of a day. Um, nonetheless, there, there, that's a, that's a, that's a clerical question. That's a, that's a, you know, when do you start the clock question? There's a separate category of cases where, um, the clock did not start until COPA made a determination about policy eligibility. And so I think those are related, but slightly different sets of things. Right. So, so I, I understand. I mean, it makes some sense about them having something like we just learned about this case today. So for us, the clock starts today. That makes right. that to me makes some sense. Now, also, if you had a well-written policy, that wouldn't be an issue. That that vagary should not be there. And that's, so, and that, that's, I, that's agreed. And that's one of the. I think that's sort of one of the the pieces to raise in conversation here, right? And and. With many new policies, this would be the case, right? There would be sort of a 1.0 of the policy, and then it would operate for a little while, and then everybody would know more about its gaps and things and, and where it needed clarification. I think that's absolutely right. In addition to the sort of like, well, did we learn about this last night and nobody got to the office until this morning? I mean, there's that sort of like one day possibility. But you're also, you're absolutely there are situations, particularly in that category of instance we talked about, where COPA might learn of something by way of a complaint. That complaint might come three years after an incident much less, much less outside of 60 days. And then, you know, COPA cannot possibly do anything within 60 days of an incident it only learned about potentially years later. Um, I think that's probably, you know, an eventuality which the policy should, comp should contemplate. Right, and being someone who helped um, the small impact to have on writing the legislation to create COPA and writing the legislation to create the, your office, um, and helped write the reforms for the police board that makes them explain their definite their decisions and puts everything online. We painstakingly went over that the language with a lot of lawyers in the room and painstakingly talked for a lot of time about how could this be interpreted? How does this mm -hmm. have to say this? How do we make sure we got this result? Does that language get us to this result? And it seems to me when Policies like this around accountability get left in the dark to policymakers and politicians who they're usually one and the same. Um, big policies like this get written. This doesn't seem to be something, I'm, this is my complaint, you don't have to talk at all about it, but it's mine. It's like this vagary happens when they're rushing to get something done and they're rushing to tell the media they got something done rather than worrying about how it actually works in the world. It's very, you're an ex-state's attorney and a lawyer, you know, it's very hard to write words that control people's actions. 
right? You have to worry about how anyone could possibly interpret that. It's very hard and it's yes. got to be done slowly and methodically. And that's something, the vagaries in all of this really, um, they're very annoying. They shouldn't exist. And I'm sure we can get I, pie into number two, but we shouldn't need this number two. Anyways, I'm just complaining. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, I think there are lots of, lots of very legitimate concerns about the way policy gets made. I, I also think, you know, I, policies like this are sort of a living operation and, um, and they should be revisited periodically when, and, and refined and improved. And so, you know, I, I think that's, that's the time we've come to with the video release policies that it's time to, to refine it and to make improvements about the areas where we know it, um, it leaves gaps. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And I think there's, there's, um, there's varying degrees of what's acceptable for a failure, in my opinion. Um, this is the kind of work when I helped write the policy to create your office. This is the kind of work that I hoped would be done. This is it, in-depth, these, these in-depth looks. I just was hoping it wouldn't have such systemic failures. It'd be identifying such systemic failures. Not that your office was failing, but these are um, systemic failures. And we're going to get in right now to the time OEMC, we got some stats here, how long it takes OEMC to respond to COPA's requests. And that's not deal with whether or not COPA is writing the request the right way. I'm sure there's some issues and I'm sure that can improve. But once again, we're talking about, is, did anyone increase staffing for, for ONC so they had the staff to respond in appropriate times? My answer is gonna be no, Rom cut every budget he could possibly find. Except so I, these are all, I mean, these are really timely questions in, in what is sort of an unprecedented budget season, right? We're, we're headed oh, into yeah. a city unlike any other. Um, these are really important questions. This is, this is I think, a situation in which um, staffing and resources have a real, real world, real life sort of implications around things that people care about. Um, I, so, I, you know, yes. You're not going to hear this or me usually in the police accountability sphere, but to some extent, these organizations were almost set up to fail, right? Because they unfortunately had a vague policy, um, not so much the police, but OEMC and COPA, they didn't get new resources. They didn't get new staffing. They didn't get new technologies necessarily to just allow all of this to happen um, seamlessly in the way that it needs to happen. And they're saying, okay, well, now you have this whole new policy you have to live up to. And oh, by the way, make, make your understaffed probably already, right? You're understaffed already, the huge cuts from the, uh, the depression or whatever financial crisis. Um, so we're just going to heap this policy on you and you're going to have to figure out how to make this work. Um, but unfortunately, OEMC is not making it work. So 57 in the responses, 57% of the time, the responses take plus 60 days. 13% of the time, that gives us up to 70%, take between 40 and 60 days. 3% uh, take between 31 and 45 days, which sort of kind of, depending on how quickly COPA sends the request, could get them possibly remotely within the 60 days, but that would be hard. 9% 16 to 30 days, and 18, 18% were five days or less. So we're, at, we're basically saying that COPA is set up to fail at least well, 20% of the time they're set up to succeed if they get the request in early enough, which I think in, in your report was 50, uh, within 15 days. I think these are the numbers for requests they sent in under 15 days. But 
that's 70% take 46 to over 60 days. How does, how yep. does Copa, <laughs> how does Copa succeed in getting video and audio reviewed and online when they, when they don't have it yet? That's, I mean, that, that's right. That's therein lies the, lies the problem. Um, you know, I, this is, this is similar to a conversation we had um, back about, about the records management report, where I think with problems like this, there are kind of ideal world solutions and real world solutions. The ideal world solutions here are that we have more staff and more technological resources and better information systems, right, to share these things back and forth, more people to respond to the requests, um, I, more resources would make this better. Um, given, I think, realities of the budget and, and where we are, I, there's, there's, I think, also a need for, for real world solutions which do not depend on additional dollars. And so I think that's where you see the, the responses from the agencies around kind of refining the way they communicate with each other. There's some discussion about the possibility of detailing a COPA employee to OEMC to allow, to, to kind of remove one of those interagency handoffs, basically, to, to kind of, um, right? So, so where you have a resource constrained problem, the two options are either more resources or you make it take, you make it more efficient, you make it more resource efficient. And so I think, you know, we need to do both of those things. Yeah, I, I actually I, I actually applaud them for the idea of, of deploying a COPA employee at OEMC to help reduce the confusion, the communication. I think that's a great idea. Um, I, I fear with you, I am in the, I, I fear for all urban budgets in 2021. I think we're in, I think the cities are in for a shock about what's coming. Um, and I don't, um, I, I don't see resources for two or three years. Maybe I'm pessimistic, but um, they're going to have to keep being innovative in the way they respond because I don't think we're going to see money uh, bestowed upon COPA or OEMC or even the CPD to handle this anytime soon. Um, okay, I, I want to go ahead. That this is a grim outlook. No, I just I, I agree. I think the yeah. budget outlook. Yeah, I don't think people understand um, what's about to hit Chicago. I know we've heard some of the numbers, but I think when the cuts come, I think it's going to be pretty, um, pretty severe. Okay, let me get to a question, and this is I want to talk in generalities because um, it isn't specifically related to one of your reports. How much of a need is there? Well, let me back up and say, when you, when you see these issues with policy, I think the first response to most people in Chicago when it comes to policing or justice or police accountability is always that there's something nefarious going on. Um, and I don't doubt that has something to do with it in some small cases, but I think a lot of this is just inattention. And this is just the way we do it. How much of this stuff could be do you think could actually really be improved if, if the leadership dedicated themselves to getting things like this done? Because it's the same thing with the records report you talked about. Mm -hmm. That's the way we do it. It just is, and it's existed forever. And as long as we never look at, I always made the, I used to tell people, this is how Chicago and Cook County operates. We don't have a data system, so we can't know. And since we can't know, you can't get mad at us for not knowing what you think we should know because we can't know because we don't have a data system that allows us to know it, right? The, the Cook County Sheriff's Office, I think, is still on a mainframe, right? Get that through your, let that settle in. Right? So how much of this is, 
So how much, I, I was just, just, how much of this could be changed if the leadership in not so much this, all of the system, is, is this a leadership failure? Is it just that they're too busy on too many other things? Because the, the records report you put, you put out, at least in my words, I'm going to say, was pretty damning. We don't really can 100% guarantee that we respond constitutionally to subpoenas. That's a serious issue. Um, your office put some common sense, rec common sense recommendations together. Um, and not that you guys aren't all super people there, but it wasn't like this is something that couldn't have been done by the police department if they put their attention to it. So, and this report spells out things that are problems that if leadership, it seems like if leadership put their attention to it, they could solve those problems. Yeah, I, I think those are important observations. I was smiling at your observation of the the Cook County mainframe because I was thinking back to many hours as a Cook County prosecutor yeah. spent looking yes. at green type, which is the case management yes. system. You know, happy memories there. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> I, there's, there's an often used expression that what gets studied gets done, what gets measured gets done. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind of goes to your observation. I, I, where the attention of management and oversight is directed, I think we are likely to see improvement. Um, sunshine is an antiseptic in lots of ways. Um, that's one of them, is that, that the kind of the direction of attention and focus I think increases the likelihood of improvement. Um, there are clearly some things about, about the, the problems identified in the video release report. I, I agree with you. Same thing is true of the records management report. Um, where the solutions aren't rocket science and they aren't magic. They are sort of common sense, practical solutions to really big and important problems. Um, so, you know, if the question is, is could these things be made better if the good and smart people we have in these institutions paid more attention? I, yes. Okay, well, right. And see, like, these are great reports. There's no doubt. But at the same time, they're like, Oh, and I, I have the same thing on sexual assault. I asked them multiple years ago, 10 years ago, we did a report on sexual assault case processing from calls for service through the state's attorney's office. Mm -hmm. And I asked, um, I found out that they, the CPD at that point had 10 years, they averaged 16% of sexual assaults they mark unfounded. So they disappear from the crime stats, which by the way, the CPD is fighting us in court and not giving us in our FOIA litigation. They seem to think we don't want the unfounded uh, crime incident data related to unfounded cases. They did us a favor by not giving it to us. At least that's what they said in court in December. Once again, we're back to FOIA. Um, but I FOIA'd the police department and said, give me the policy and regulations around how officers determine a case is unfounded. We, no such records I got back. Yeah. And it, it it's like, how can you can quality control something with 13,000 people? We talked about this in the last time you were on. It's a mammoth organization, right? It yes. spans the entire city. It's mammoth. It's incredibly hard to quality control everything they do. It's a mammoth undertaking. Um, I don't think they have the management resources to do it in the right way, but I don't understand. Like, how do you not do this without having steadfast policies? That's what I thought then. Then I looked at your subpoena report, records report. I think it's what I think about. And now I'm looking at this report and it's like, wow, it's th the consistent theme is there is lack of having regulations in stone about how things yep. get done. This is an internal controls problem, right? And, and adequate internal controls certainly do not guarantee that nothing goes wrong because mistakes happen and, and humans 
things, yeah, right? Um, but but adequate controls around these processes would, I think, greatly minimize the field of potential error, potential failure. And so things like directive CPD or you know refinements to the language of the policy. What we're talking about there is exactly exactly what you're getting at: improved controls, um, improved guardrails for this process to take place. Does that mean nothing ever jumps the guardrail? No, but but better guardrails. Right, and I will tell you where this really hit home for me years ago, when Jody Weiss was working on internally a policy to allow them to carry assault rifles. I got a text message from a, uh, a high-ranking police officer, and he says, we're meeting here at this time, and you're coming. I need to talk to you now. And it hadn't really been made public. And he, this person handed me the general order that it was written. And he said, you need to help me kill this. And I'm like, really, why? Because he's he, you will not find anyone more pro-police and keeping his officer safe than this guy. And he said, my officers already have enough decisions to make on the street. Why are we giving them another one with such a deadly weapon that no one has proved to me they need, right? And the kicker of that order that the media never covered, I tried to get them to cover, in that order was the fact that, in the general order, and it still exists, was the fact that supervisors could not stop their officers who they knew should not carry the weapon from carrying the weapon. And he goes, look at that. I know I can tell you three guys that should never be allowed to carry this weapon from their histories. They're bad guys. I can't stop them. And I, I told him a time ago, I thought everything was worked out and codified in your department. He's like, no, things like this, this is how they're done. And that makes me think it's like records. It's the same way. This process, as good as it is, and it is a leader probably nationally, especially the first mm -hmm. one, it isn't the way it should be. The, the subpoena thing isn't the way it should be. It's not horrible, but it just isn't the way it should be. Yeah. So right? I, it's I think. We're almost, go ahead. I, well, I, I think you, know, you made a really important point earlier, which is that it's hard to control behavior with a policy. It's one of the things that makes policy creation hard. Um, there, there are kind of two channels, I think, to think about behavior modification, behavior control. There is policy and there's sort of institutional culture, right? I'm, I'm sure you and I have talked about these, that, that culture eats policy for lunch. You can have a perfect yep. policy. And if institutional culture kind of weighs against compliance with it, it's not enough. Which is to say that you need both good policy and, it, and an institutional culture of compliance. Neither one of those things is sufficient on their own. Both of them are necessary. Um, and so with respect to gaps in policy or problems in policy, I, if the underlying policy, in this case, the video release policy, is inadequate or you know, falls short in some way, then we're never going to get to a good result. A perfect policy isn't enough, but we're never going to get to a good result with, with, a, with a, an imperfect policy or, or a, you know, a, a suboptimal policy. No, I 100% agree. And this is why, and I'm going to be writing an op-ed on this soon. And email uh sending a letter to mayor lightfoot i really think uh, and you said it about sunshine being the antiseptic i think we need um a lot of this could get discovered if we just had um a priority to transparency which is every every city agency should get 12 months for whenever this whenever this new normal is in our rearview mirror 
you now get 12 months and you get to dis- you get to analyze every data set you make, you create or maintain, and mm-hmm. you send us a listing of that and what you need to keep private because there are legitimate privacy concerns, what you need to keep private. And in 12 months, we're going to have a spot for you to dump your data every month in the data portal. Right. And then that hopefully is the internal, hopefully that kicks off an internal analysis, understanding that all of a sudden people are going to be able to look at regularly what they're doing. And it'll no longer be able to say, this is what, this is just the way it's been done. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really important a really important idea. And I have two two reactions to that. One is that I will just take this opportunity to plug OIG's information portal, which is by no means the source of, of all data about city operations, but there's a huge amount of information about, about city operations available kind of for use and analysis on OIG's website. So I would certainly just send people who are interested in that there. The other thing I would say is I, I think your observation is a hugely important one that points to the need for a really profound shift in the way we think about transparency in city government. And that is that we need to think about transparency as itself the imperative, not in the service of managing litigation risk or in the service of anything else except except transparency itself. Transparency is a public good um, and a public entitlement. And I think that we need to um, kind of realign our thinking in city government around the recognition of that, that transparency for transparency's sake is the appropriate goal. Right. And I think that there's a lot of policies and practices in these systems. They've, these Most of these organizations, except COPE, have been around forever. The police board's been around since 1960. This is just how the way we do it. We've never been challenged. No one's made a prioritize, excuse me, showed us a reason to prioritize the change, so we're not going to waste the time. This analysis that they'd have to do internally and then release, excuse me, release would actually throw that, um, throw some sunlight on it and make them do that prioritization. Okay, before I let you go, what is the Inspector General's website? What is the actual URL for all of this? It is www.igchicago.org. And one of the, one of the choices and, at the top is Information Portal. An Information Portal, and you have, does the Inspector uh, DPSIG, your office have a section of the website where they can find stuff just about what you've done? There is a, um, so there's a public safety devoted section of the information portal, which has to do with police data of, all, of a variety of kinds. And on the main OIG website, all of the, all of the public safety sections reports and analyses are, are posted there. Okay, awesome. Uh, Deborah Whitsburg, we look forward to your next report. FOIA, FOIA, FOIA. Um, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right, everyone, for our audience, uh, this will be up on YouTube and Facebook um, momentarily, so you can rewatch it in all your glory. And then um, it'll be available in the podcast, hopefully by the end of the week. Um, next week, we're talking about families, working families and justice. Um, and we're looking soon to have GAPA. Stay tuned for Tuesday morning for the release of our lawsuit and the press conference, where it will stream live on at least Facebook and Twitter. Um, and if you need to get information from us, uh, chicagojustice.org. If you want to look on the police board website, cpbinfocenter.org is our police board uh, transparency website. Um, and I will see you next week. Thank you again, Deborah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. See you soon.
cool. We're clear. All right. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Anytime. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I got to look. I got to I got to write some. I want to see what the media I haven't tracked the media response to your report. Got it. I think it so. got I think, you know, I was I was pleased to see the, the attention and I think, you know, some amount of like public grasping of the notion of, that we talked about that like anytime this goes wrong, it's a problem. So I think reason to be hopeful. All right. Do you have any I'm, I'm sure you're going to say you have no idea, but do you have any insight into what's coming from the mayor's office in the gap version that's going to be without the community input? I do not, but I'm on the edge of my seat. So my God, I, so I don't, I really don't. We're, um, I'm trying to set up a night interview um, that we're going to stream with um, Desmond Yancey. He was, the, I think, the, one of the organizers for GAPA. Mm -hmm. I know my, the limited information I have is that once she rejected it in March, what I've heard, or February or March when it happened and it didn't pass, was that they started losing community groups and people started going over to CPAC. I, I, yeah, I think I think lots of like splintering and sort of, yeah. I am not a CPAC fan, so that alarmed me. Like, uh, I, I think there's, like, yeah, there's plenty to be alarmed about here, frankly. Yeah, no, no, there really is. And I don't know, yeah. and honestly, I don't know if Gaffet should have the power to hire and fire the superintendent. I can argue both ways on that. I think creating a way so there's a lot of political pressure on the mayor to act, I think would be good. But just having seven or nine elected idiots run a 13,000-man paramilitary force makes no sense to me. I think all of these are calibration questions, right? There has to be an input stream for, like, community perspective and lived experience. It's a question of calibrating that appropriately with, like, technical expertise and subject matter. Right? I mean, I, these are calibration problems, I think. Which And, well, and I, I worry a lot conversation, right? That's, like, a subtlety that I'm not sure is... No, about. no, it's totally lost, right? And it's the, you know, lefties don't want to admit it's the same problem we're having with the right, which is this anti-intellectualism, anti-expertise issue, right? It's like, we know better, we're average person. I'm sorry, I don't hire a plumber to come fix my electricity. That doesn't, that doesn't work, right? And that's the excuse, I use, the phrase I use, I'm like, I don't understand how, I don't know, I've studied policing in 24 years, I don't think if I would even be qualified to be on that board running the police department. I think, you know, the yeah, low, right technical knowledge, like subject matter knowledge, I, that's all, I, that's, that's the worry, I think. Right, and to me, it's like, I don't, why would those people be any less corrupt than if you think the mayor and aldermen are being corrupt and collecting their buddies? Why aren't these other seven or nine or 50 people that you're hiring or electing, why aren't they going to be corrupt? How are they devoid of corruptness? I don't understand. They they won't come on. I've tried to beg them to come on the show so I could talk to them about the ordinance. They refuse. Well, I uh, I will so, look forward just... to it more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would love it. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take it easy. Thanks, Drake. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.